hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by, jo- by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, Holy Father, on this first Sunday of Christmas tide, as we celebrate together the birth of your Son, I pray that you would use this passage to impress upon us the wonder of his coming. Lord, use this, your word, to warm our hearts on this cold day and in the dark of winter and in the darkness of our lives, Lord, in the darkest areas of our lives, I pray that you would use this passage and that you would speak through me to bring warmth and light to your people. Show us today the goodness of Jesus, our King, that we would forsake all other allegiances and serve him alone. So I pray that you would attend us now by your Spirit. In your Son's mighty name I pray. Amen. Well, I'm mindful of the time of year that it is. We're standing in that gap between Christmas and New Year's, which is often a a reflective time for many. Um, And I admit it's not very reflective for me. Right now I'm getting married in five days. My mind has been in a million different places. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Uh, So it's been less than reflective for me this year. But I've, by God's grace, I've found little pockets of time to reflect on what has happened this last year, what's ahead. And I wonder if you've had time to do that, and when you do, what you see. What you see is you look backward on your year. What would be on the report, or uh, what's making the Christmas card, so to speak, and what's being purposely left out of the Christmas, part, of the Christmas card, those parts of your life that you would rather not share. And what's on your mind as you look ahead and are constructing your hopes and your dreams for the new year? And we opened our Advent season with these words from Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. In other words, oh, that you would intervene, God. That you would come and change my reality. And I wonder, what do you hope to see change? What do you feel that you need? What can this passage say to you? on the edge of a new year, with all of your hopes and dreams sitting there? Let's find out. What this passage shows us is that Jesus is marked by God to bring victory. Jesus is marked by God to bring victory, to save. He is, in fact, the perfect Savior to stand 
between heaven and hell to redeem sinners, to restore the world. He might not be the Savior we expected, but he is the Savior we need. And this passage will show us that. We'll take a look at all of this in three parts. First, Jesus is God's anointed. Jesus is God's anointed. And I'll explain later what that means. Second, Jesus is Satan's adversary. Jesus is Satan's adversary. And then three, Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. So let's start with our first point. Jesus is God's anointed. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Maybe an unfamiliar phrase or word to you. Well, allow me to build toward an answer. What Mark is doing here in his earliest portions of his gospel, but really throughout, is that he is marshalling several Old, Ta- Old Testament allusions to build for us a portrait of who Jesus is. In fact, Mark's whole gospel is really a presentation to the reader saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And do you believe that? Do you believe that? So, for example, at the end of Mark 8, which is a a pivotal uh, portion of Mark, it's really where the the book hinges, um, Jesus asks his disciples, you know, he's been doing ministry for for a while, he's been preaching, you know, there's a lot of buzz about who Jesus is, and he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they respond, or he says, who do people say that I I am? And they respond, John the Baptist, others say, you're Elijah. Others, that you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And in that moment, it is as if Mark is peering through the page and asking us that question. Halfway through Mark, who do you think Jesus is? Well, Peter Peter answers, you are the Christ. Or at the climactic moment of Mark's gospel, when Jesus has just breathed his last and the temple curtain tears in two, A Roman centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so these two confessions, you are the Christ, this man is the Son of God, these are the confessions that Mark is wanting us as the reader to make. And everything he is writing in Mark is toward that aim. And he's not coy about this at all. His gospel begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right out of the gates, Mark is after this. So let's look at verses 9 through 11, where he is again presenting evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Read with me at verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, often when we read a passage, uh, this passage, or others that uh, talk about Jesus being baptized here, our first question is, why is Jesus being baptized when he has no sin? And that is a, a good question, and probably the closest thing we have to an answer from the Gospels themselves, uh, themselves is when in Matthew Jesus says that it was done to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, in other words, that Jesus might lead by example in showing us uh, what God requires of us. But here, that question is really not Mark's concern. He's not answering it for us. Instead, 
Mark wants to shift our attention elsewhere. Look down and see that word immediately there. This word immediately, this is the first of 42 occurrences of this word in Mark. And especially, it's really heavily condensed at the front end of Mark. If you were to keep reading, you would see it basically every other verse. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And what Mark is doing here is he's heightening the drama. In fact, there's a a shift in verb tense here at that word. And so you could imagine it reading someone something like this. Jesus came from Nazareth. He was baptized. And as he was coming out of the water, right then, in that moment, he saw, he heard. There's a shift in the drama, in the emphasis. Well, what did Jesus see? And what did Jesus hear? Well, three things, all of which testify to Jesus being God's anointed. And here I'm finally answering what that word means. God's anointed is the one God crowns to bring his kingdom. God's anointed is the one that God crowns or authorizes or blesses, selects to bring and rule over his kingdom. So, for example, you know, we were just in 1 Samuel before, and when God set Saul as the first king over Israel, Saul was called God's anointed. And every king after Saul over Israel was called God's anointed. But the prophets foretell one king who will reign forever, who will bring all nations into submission to God's rule. And what the details that Mark is presenting here are saying is that this is that king. This is that anointed one. Here's how one commentator put it. When Jesus comes up from the water, he experiences three things that in Jewish tradition signify the inauguration of God's eschatological or everlasting kingdom. The heavens were opened to him, the Spirit descended into him, and the heavenly voice spoke to him. The concurrence of these momentous events at the baptism signals that Jesus is the more powerful one that John the Baptist spoke about in chapter 1, verse 7, promised in the Old Testament, and the inaugurator or the bringer of God's eschatological kingdom. In other words, that kingdom that will have no end, that kingdom where peace will reign, where everyone will bow at the name of Jesus Christ, the king of that kingdom is here. He's here. Well, let's look more into these signs. What are they telling us? Let's look at the first one, the heavens being torn open. You know, I mentioned this passage earlier, Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. What's happening here? The heavens are being rent open. This is the language of salvation. That verb rend or tear open, it's the same word that's used to describe the parting of the waters at the Red Sea or the rock in the wilderness when it breaks open and water spills out. It's also the word that's used at the very end of Mark when the curtain temple is, is, the temple curtain is torn in two. It's the language of deliverance. And so we're seeing that here at the beginning of Mark. Or the second sign, the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. 
Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The spirit always attends significant movements in the life and salvation of God's people. So for an example, in Acts 2, the spirit descends on the church in the upper room as it begins its mission. Well, that spirit's descending is predicated on the spirit having first descended on Jesus here at his baptism. The church is continuing the mission that Jesus is beginning here at his baptism. Well, the third sign that we see here is the voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Listen to Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The king has come. You bring all three of these passages together, and what do you have? You have three witnesses from the prophets testifying together that this is the Christ, the Son of God, the true and final king. And so Jesus' baptism, God is affirming his kingship, his mission, anointing him to bring salvation and victory. And he crowns him with the word of love. A slight aside here, I think it's worth noting that if you are in Christ, these words that Jesus, or that God the Father speaks over the Son, you are my beloved Son in whom with you I'm well pleased, God speaks these same words over you. Our tendency is to look at the circumstances in our life or at our own behavior and performance and to listen for the voice of love from those things. See, do I see that God loves me based on how I'm performing or that good things are happening in my life? But at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus had yet to begin the ministry that God has put upon him. You know, I recently watched this movie, Dune, which is a pretty incredible movie, but there's, it centers on a son who's about to basically take the throne over from his father, and he's talking with his father in the beginning of the movie, and he's worried that he's not going to be the kind of king that he needs to be. And his father says, sort of paraphrasing, if you do not answer the call to be king, you will still be everything I ever needed you to be. You will be my son. It was the love of the father for his son that was first and foremost. And here we see the love of the father for Jesus. And it's very important to know that despite our performance, despite our obedience, Jesus, or God the Father says to us, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased. How's that for strength and hope for the new year? Well, so we see here that Jesus is God's anointed. He's a king. And what happens next may seem surprising treatment for royalty. 
But it's exactly what we need from a Savior who stands between heaven and hell. And this is what happens. Jesus is cast into the wilderness to be tempted. And so we come to our second point, looking at how it is that Jesus is marked by God to bring victory. Here's the second point. Jesus is Satan's great adversary. You know, as with our first point, Mark is presenting evidence that Jesus is marked by God to bring victory. And here, against the great and true enemy of God and man, he's bringing victory against Satan, the adversary. Listen, look at verse 12. It reads, The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. I think there are two illusions in this passage that are important for understanding in what way Jesus is standing against Satan, and not just standing against Satan, but standing in our place against Satan and against temptation. One illusion is to Israel's wandering in the wilderness. If you've been reading the Bible for a while, your ears may have perked up at this detail that Jesus was in the desert 40 days. 40 is a really significant number throughout the scriptures, and most of all, in the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel after they were brought out of Egypt. Well, what had happened to them just before? They had passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and then they wandered in the wilderness. Well, here, Jesus has passed through the waters of baptism, and now he's being tested 40 days in the wilderness. Mark is casting Jesus here as the new Israel. But where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus has succeeded. You know, the scriptures say, out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus here is being the faithful son that Israel failed to be. Well, the second illusion, I think, is to Eden. You know, when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan and sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were cast into the wilderness. Well, here, Jesus is cast out into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. This is a reversal of Eden. Jesus is not only the new and better Israel, he's the new and better Adam. Notice some of the new creation uh, themes coming through in verses 10 through 11. You have Jesus coming up out of the water and the presence of the Spirit descending and a voice from heaven saying, with you I am well pleased. Well, this sounds a lot like when God created the world and the Spirit was hovering above the face of the deep. And after creating Adam and Eve, God, looking over all that he had made, saw that it was very good. Well, where the first creation was spoiled, here Christ, coming to bring new creation, has succeeded. And so in these illusions, Mark is showing Jesus to be the faithful Israel, the faithful Adam, to do what no man has ever done, to have perfect obedience in the face of temptation. You know, I also think that this foreshadows Jesus' greater testing that will come before his crucifixion. You know, it's somewhat like in, in most stories about a hero, uh, the hero often meets their adversary partway through the journey, it's sort of like a first meeting and a, a test and a show of strength. So, for example, I guess my mind is just on sci-fi movies that take place in the desert because in, uh, there's one of the Star Wars movies where Rey, and she's the protagonist, has this first battle with Kylo Ren, who's 
somehow related to Darth Vader. I don't really know all the details. And they're in the desert, and they, they do this battle with the Force, and it's essentially like this arm wrestling match. And what it is is an initial show of strength where Rey comes out on top, and there's this slight unveiling, this hint that she has a superior power, unlike anyone who has ever come before. Well, there's a similar thing happening here. We're looking at one of two bookends in Mark where Jesus endures a great testing. The greater test comes at the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will ultimately decide to go through with the mission that he receives at his baptism, to redeem the world at the cost of his own life. So Mark is not only showing us Jesus' divine power, he's beginning to unveil a surprise to the readers and to us that Jesus will be a king who suffers, a savior who suffers. You know, Jesus' temptation is deeply connected here to his baptism. The same spirit who descended on Jesus like a dove also drove him out into the wilderness to be tested. Well, the servant in Isaiah 42, I I quoted Isaiah 42 earlier about the servant who's going to bring forth justice to the nations. That servant in whom God delights, it's the same servant in Isaiah 53 who is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, whose wounds heal us. We have a king who suffers. Why? Why is it that the Savior of the world had to suffer? It's because we needed someone to stand in the gap for us. How else could we be reconciled to God? How else can our sufferings be redeemed? How else can we be delivered from the body of death? But that God takes on a body just like ours and feels the dust of this earth on his very feet. You know, the way the Westminster Confession of Faith says it is that Jesus needed to be both God and man so that he could advance our nature, so that he could break through what we cannot break through. We need someone whose light can dispel the darkness. Because whatever shred of light we have will not do it. In fact, we are part of the darkness. But Jesus... God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, He can. He can dispel the darkness. He and He alone can advance our nature. You know, one more note on suffering before we continue is, I think one thing this passage teaches us is that we do not have to and should not look at our suffering as a sign that God is displeased with us or has abandoned us. Jesus is in the wilderness, but God had just said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Did that change when Jesus found himself in the wilderness? Not at all. 
The two are not exclusive. In fact, they go together. And for those of us who are in Christ, this is our same journey. We are adopted as beloved sons and daughters of God in whom God is well pleased because of Christ. And then we begin a life of faith in a dark and haunted world where we live among the wild animals, which I think here is a symbol of chaos and persecution and affliction. You know, one commentator said that Mark may here be uh, hinting toward the experience of first century Christians who were sometimes thrown to, to the wild dogs and eaten under uh, Nero's reign. And he's showing his readers, just as God was with Jesus in the wilderness, he's with you in your wilderness. Life is a struggle, and God is with us. It is in the desert that God ministers to us. Again, more hope for the new year. Whatever wild animals you are facing now or will face, there, trust that God is ministering to you. Well, we've seen that Jesus is God's anointed, marked by God to bring victory against his adversary, that he is a savior, a perfect savior between heaven and hell. And now we have to ask, what response does that require of us? And that leads us to our next point, which is this. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. You know, it could be really easy to just look at this story as a myth or as something, you know, separate from us, you know, almost like we would, uh, you know, uh, again, a sci-fi movie or, you know, just something that there's a battle somewhere else happening. Almost like when you you know, watch the news and see two countries at war with each other, uh, each other overseas and they're hurling bombs at each other. It's, you know, it feels like mostly a, a them issue. I mean, sure, it affects everything, but there's really nothing we can do about it. But this is not how this story is. The battle we see here is not a them issue. It's a you issue, an us issue. And we know that because of what we read in verses 14 and through 15. Jesus, in real time and place, came and announced that what he is doing demands a response from you. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's at your doorstep. It's here now. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what is this gospel? What does Mark mean when he says this word? Well, Mark will build the definition of this gospel as he goes along. It's going to come to mean more to the reader by the end of this gospel than it does here. But in its simplest form, gospel means the good news. And typically, uh, you know, the, word, the way that word is used uh, in, in this time is that it's typically it's good news from a battle, victory news, basically. And so what Mark's readers would think at this point in the gospel is that, well, Jesus has come from God to bring victory to God's people, to save us from our enemies, who in this instance would be the Romans. But we know now, because we know the end of the story, that the good news is way more expansive than this. 
God's deliverance, or what is the gospel? It is God's deliverance from darkness. It is liberation of the oppressed. It is sight to the blind. It is peace among men. It is the removal of sin and the restoration of the body. It is, as Tolkien has famously said, everything sad coming untrue. And all of this will happen because Christ has died and rose again to conquer sin and death, putting everything in subjection to him. Everything. Your life. Your fate. Your, the forces that you can't control. The things that worry you. The things you hope for. Everything under his feet. It is not a matter, matter of whether Jesus is king or not. It is a matter of whether you receive him as king or not which has everything to do with what will happen to you at the end. It is demanding a response. In this word, that everlasting king is looking you in the eye with all love and all authority and saying, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what might it look like to repent and believe in 2022? As we stand at the edge of this new year with all our hopes and dreams and fears and burdens, what might it mean to repent and believe in the gospel? Well, repentance is to turn from your sins from your idols, from your false gods. Many of us are plagued by the sins of others, but we're also plagued by our own sins and our own false gods. You know, Psalm 16 says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. How are your gods serving you? For which of your gods do the heavens tear open? Which of your gods can defend you in the wilderness? Which of your gods can stand with you at judgment? No, your gods, our gods, our false gods, they are a footstool for the Most High God, and the ground will open up to swallow them. Repentance is a message of good news. It is King Jesus saying, I have disarmed your kings. The show is over. Be my servant instead. And in fact, to be a servant of King Jesus, to be a slave of King Jesus, is the greatest joy there is. It's absolute freedom. So repent of that which you have to repent of. What about believing? What does it look like to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that God sent him to save you, that he died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins, that he is your only defense, that because he came in a body, he is able to save you completely and to sympathize with your every weakness. 
It is to rest and to rejoice in that good news. To bring that good news forward. Jesus is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of your hopes and dreams for 2022. He is the Lord of your losses in 2021. He is making all things new. He will someday dispel all darkness. And even though you may be wandering in the wilderness, even there you have the voice of love singing over you. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. These are the gifts of believing the good news. The Lord is more than enough, my friends, to carry us through whatever comes in life because he is our life. His love and his presence can buoy us in the wildest of storms, shines in the darkest, darkest places. Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom can I, or on earth but you? And whom can I desire in heaven beside you? Jesus is our life. You know, earlier I quoted Psalm 2, which is, is a psalm that ultimately is about Jesus being the king of all creation. And here is how that psalm ends. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This psalm has some bite to it. Jesus' message that he came proclaiming in Galilee has bite to it. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's nothing to shrug your shoulders at. It is the true reality of all things. But it is also a gift to us that Jesus is king. That Jesus is the true Savior sent from God who stands in the gap to save you. There is no other salvation. So repent and believe in the gospel and rejoice that the king has come. Let's pray. Father, we would not have designed our Savior as he is or our salvation as it is, but in your wisdom, you sent us the perfect Savior. You sent us exactly who we needed. Lord, and I thank you that he is a Savior who has both all authority and all love, who reigns and whose reign brings peace and joy and comfort. And I pray for my dear brothers and sisters in this room and watching online that you would bring peace and comfort to their lives and their hearts. Many are the burdens we carry and the fears that we wake up remembering that we also went to bed 
thinking of. There is so much we can't control. There is so much from which we would love deliverance now. We ask that you would help us to walk with you, to trust that your deliverance will come in your timing, and that we know, Lord, that you have already secured our final deliverance in Christ. And so we praise you, we thank you, we ask that you give us faith and hope in the new year. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.